Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. For a couple days this past week, I was up in Vero Beach, about three miles north of my apartment, for the funeral of my Aunt Jenny. And while I was up there, I got to talking with a lot of the family that I never see. They live in Sebastian, Florida, which is a little bit north of Vero. We are all intuitively and reflexively close with one another, but given that there's about three or four hours of road between us, They don't know all that much about my life, except for what I post on Facebook, which isn't very much, nor do I know very much about their lives, except for what they post on Facebook. It's this interesting, it feels like this interesting piecemeal portrait that we get of each other. It's almost like we're biographers or reporters, really, like going on social media and consulting these vague, broken bits of documentation and piecing together a life that we aren't seeing firsthand. At a couple of different points during the funeral service and afterward at a nearby restaurant, a relative would ask me what I'm up to these days and I would tell them that I'm bartending at a restaurant near my apartment. And since one of the things that they know about me is that ever since I was a kid, I've been writing and that's what I want to do with my life, they would all say, that's great. In response to my being a bartender, they would say, that's great. And they would say it without any irony, without being patronizing or condescending, because they know me. And rather than looking at, for instance, the the financial or the class implications of that job, they think simply of how it might play into my interests and my personality. And in looking at my job through that lens, everyone who asked me about it ended up saying the same thing, which is that you must get a lot of stories as a bartender. And I do. I've mentioned this a few times now, the fact that I get to see remarkable things at my job. And and once I was getting situated in the job, actually, you might remember, I did two parts of what I was intending to be a trilogy on the podcast. I was calling it Pizza Story, parts one and two, but I never recorded the third installment. I knew what it was going to be, but I got cold feet because, as I suggested in the cliffhanger at the end of that second installment, the third one would have trotted some gray ethical ground. But now I'm thinking, fuck it. Like my family is keen to say up there, the great thing about the job in which I've found myself is that it gives me access to stories, and the thing that I like to do is tell stories. Also, you know, I've got mortality on the mind, and I just sat through a funeral service where I got to appreciate the roundedness and complexity of a late relative by hearing all of these different people talk about what she meant to them personally. And so I'm in a mood right now to kind of do with my life and with my little platforms the thing that I like to do, the thing that, at least among my relatives up in Sebastian, Florida, I am known to do. So, let me tell you that story. I got hired at this pizza place as a server. I didn't get promoted to bartender until two or three months later. And while I was a server, I would have regulars. People who came into the restaurant once or twice a week, they'd have a preferred table. But when you're a server, you don't really build a rapport with your regulars the way that you do when you're a bartender. Because you can't, as a server, you can't really just stand around and chat with them, but that's, that's literally the job of a bartender. But nonetheless, you do get regulars and you do build up some semblance of, of a rapport. And uh, pretty soon into the job, when I was still a server, I started to have a regular of my own. He's in his early 50s, and he would come around sometimes with his girlfriend, too. She was probably the same age. And whether he came in by himself or the two of them came in together, he liked to sit at a particular booth. A booth that happens to fall into the very limited section to which amateur servers are appointed. This guy's name is Greg, and his girlfriend's name is Kelly. And I soon came to learn that Greg and Kelly come around to the restaurant pretty often. Occasionally they sit at the bar, but mostly they sit in this booth. Fast forward a couple months, it's my second shift as a bartender, and here come Greg and Kelly. They're skipping out on the booth this time and opting instead to sit at the bar. They go on to occupy the two stools that are closest to my mixing area. It's like a, there's like a little mat over the ice chest, and this is where I fix cocktails. 
And while normally Greg and Kelly are very playful and flirty and super amped up with conversation, it seems today like they've brought a problem into the restaurant with them. And not just a problem, Kelly has also brought a loose sheet of college-ruled paper, torn from a spiral notebook. She's got it folded four ways, and I can tell that there's a lot of handwriting on it. Every few minutes, she unfolds the paper, reads something aloud to Greg, and then she folds the paper, and she sets it down four ways, like a weapon that she doesn't need to use at the moment, and just stares at him. Greg hears her out every time she reads from this paper, and as their visit progresses, and as her interrogation continues, I see Greg's posture getting worse. I see him going slack. Each response that he gives is a little more irritable than the last one. Every now and then he raises his voice, but then ca then catches himself and, and reels it back, and he takes a deep breath, and then Kelly, meanwhile, is embarrassed, and she starts, like, looking around, and she takes a sip of her blue moon, tries to be discreet. They're both drinking beers, and their conversation is getting kind of, like, quietly heated. It is obviously a conflict, a dispute of some kind. The alcohol is not helping, and everyone can feel the vibe coming off of them. Because this, the bar where I work, it's like a horseshoe-shaped counter. Everyone can see everyone. And so I'm a little concerned about the dynamic, but my friend Jackie... She's been a bartender for a very long time. She's one of the one of the bartenders at Red Bar, and she kind of coaches me on these situations. She always says that, like, unless you're, you're dealing with people who are drinking, so they're not going to be super well-behaved, unless they are actively disturbing other people, leave them alone, especially if they're regulars. And so I figure, okay, Greg and Kelly are having a fight, whatever, just I, so I didn't, I didn't say anything. But also, fucking let me not act like I'm Big Dick McGee over here, like fucking Charlie Potatoes, that I've, I've got some bat under the counter and I'm gonna, like, dry shoot people away if they start acting rambunctious. Truth be told, I don't know what the fuck I'm gonna do if somebody, like, gets really out of hand. Like, one, one time I had this regular, and I've actually told you about him before. I may, I've done, I may have done two episodes about him. Gorgonzola? Gorgonzola was having a really bad day, and for some reason, before he'd even had a drink, he just walked behind the fucking bar and started pointing at the wine that he wanted, but from like two feet away. And I was kind of pleased with myself for how I just sort of stepped up reflexively and told him like, oh, oh easy there. It wasn't, I wasn't like, oh, get, get the fuck out from behind the bar, but I was just, I just like gently, but firmly chauffeured him to his stool. And speaking of Gorgonzola, I know I've told you about him before, but I don't think I ever told you what he did to really piss me off and kind of ruin our relationship, because he's actually never been back to the bar. I think he's fucking embarrassed. Rightly so. I've also only seen him come in and, like, pick up food for Uber Eats, which is his full-time job. I've only seen him do it, like, twice since the night in question. But that was the night that things went sour, was the night that he walked behind the bar and just pointed at a bottle of wine that he wanted. He was being really, like, bossy and rude with me from the moment he walked in. Anyway, so he's eating and he's drinking, and then, suddenly, he's joined, like a minute before we close, he's joined by a woman who appears to be at least 20 years younger than he is. And whatever, I don't have any problem with that as a rule, I think he's like 50, so I guess she's like 30, whatever, it's whatever. To each their own, they're both adults. But what was pathetic, what would seem pathetic, is that after his being sort of a bossy douche with me, I'm standing there waiting for him to leave. I've finished all my side work. The bar is spotless except for the fucking place that he occupies. The restaurant is already closed. All the other customers have left. And fucking Gorgonzola starts groveling to this young woman. It was like, it was like angry begging. And he was complaining about how she never answers his texts. And like she, he'll text her a bunch of times. She won't answer. The next day, she'll say that her phone was off, but meanwhile, he's looking at her Instagram and he can see that she was recently active, she's on there all night. And also, like to backtrack, I'm reluctant to say that it's pathetic, because I'm, I feel like we've all probably been in a relationship where we kind of traded our dignity for someone else's affection. I've done it, so I'm like, who the fuck am I to judge? But what was worse is like, I thought that the reason he was so upset when he initially showed up is because as he had just been telling me, He'd been driving for like 12 hours that day for Uber Eats, and he had only earned $100, if that. And yet here, to try to impress this young woman, he orders a 50-something-dollar like bottle of wine. And not only that, 
I mean, also there's the fact that they sat there drinking it until like a fucking hour after we closed. But after he like they'd had their little quarrel and then they reconciled. He's doing his suave Casanova thing, and he starts, like, pontificating about the wine that they're sipping, and how it's actually not very good. <laughs> this is- and then this is what fucking kind of ended things for me. When he was finally ready to go, he tried to make me feel stupid, and I've got such a fucking chip on my shoulder about that kind of thing. One, one of the irksome characteristics about Gorgonzola is that he's always boasting of how worldly he is, how- how traveled he is, how it's, I think it was like his father is German and his mother is Italian, but he was raised in Syria. And he's very proud of the fact that he is a polyglot, that he speaks like five languages, except I don't, I'm not sure that he speaks any of them very well. He's constantly lapsing from one language into another. Sometimes it's because he's trying to sound smart and cultured. Other times I think it's because he's having trouble communicating his point. But he also tries to always, like, be flippant in conversation and to do these clever little turns of phrase. Which reminds me, by the way, the author Clive James once said that the only talent he ever had in life was the ability to turn a phrase. To turn it and turn it and turn it until it catches the light. And I've always thought that was really lovely. But anyway, so fucking Gorgonzola is finally, he's done with the wine, he's ready for his check, and he apparently also wants me, for me to pack up his remaining food. And so he snaps his fingers to beckon me over to where he is at the bar, which is a fucking huge, like, no, no, no go thing. But so I'm coming towards him. He stands up from his stool, points at his leftovers, juts a thumb over his shoulder and says, come, I go nap, nap. Let's do it. Come, I go nap, nap. Let's do it. And I was like, what? And when I said that, Gorgonzola's whole face sinks with contempt and he leans forward over the bar. He gestures with exaggerated emphasis at the food on his plate and then he hurls his thumb back over his shoulder and he says, I go nap, come. And then he slaps the counter like to speed me up and at that point, like, it's fuck it. We closed a long time ago. I'm super fucking pissed that this dude wouldn't leave. I was annoyed to have him, like, treat me like shit and then grovel to someone who's basically my age about how she's ignoring him. And I'm like, well, yeah, I fucking... You, I, Gorgonzola, I can tell you why this woman's not talking to you. But anyways, he fucking broke the last straw on my back and I was like, Gorgonzola, I don't know what that means. You want to take a nap? What do you want me to do? You want me to, food? You want your food to go? And he widens his eyes and he does this sweeping gesture toward the door like, duh. Yes, Alex, I want my food for go home. He says it with this tone, implying that I am a fucking idiot for not knowing what this lovelorn shithead means when he tells me in the capacity of bartender that he wants to take nap, go come nap, nap now. Dude thinks he's a polyglot. More like Polly not. Fucking, anyways. So, so Greg and Kelly are fighting at the bar. <laughs> Kelly's got this sheet of paper. She keeps looking at it, and then she folds it up and puts it aside and grills Greg about whatever it is that's written there. And it looks, frankly, like she's making legitimate points. Because, yes, Greg is getting angry, but with that slouching posture, it also looks like he's defeated. He looks like someone who's being confronted with their bad behavior. And I want to know what that behavior is. So I start kind of doing my business toward that corner of the bar. I start getting kind of slow with my drink making because I'm doing it very gently. So as not to make too much noise with, like, the ice scooping or the chug chug chug. All that shit is going to get in the way of my eavesdropping. I hear Greg say to Kelly at one point, so you want a relationship so bad that you're prepared to just stop seeing me altogether if I don't want that, right? If it's just that word matters to you so much more than us being together, us being happy. And suddenly, it all made sense. Or so I thought. I wanted to keep listening from this vantage, but it was a Saturday and we were fucking slammed. So I'm making all these drinks. I gotta do it fast. Chicka, chicka, chicka. And I can't catch more than the occasional sentence as Kelly takes up the paper, unfolds it, reads something out to him, then folds the paper and listens to his explanation. But eventually, somehow, I'm so caught up in my work that I don't notice the tide of their con- the tide of their conversation's tone kind of shifting. Suddenly, out of the blue, I look over and Greg and Kelly are back to being their usual 
affectionate selves, canoodling on their stools. I hear Greg say at one point, all right, 90 days then. We do 90 day, we do a 90 day experiment, boyfriend, girlfriend, and if one of us feels stifled or whatever, then we can just sort of go back. So to basically, I've gleaned enough in the course of their visit to have a general sense of their argument and of its resolution. Kelly was mad at him for not wanting to commit, and he was mad at her for holding him accountable to the fact that he basically wanted license to sleep around. And it seems like they settled on a trial run to see if a relationship might work. Doesn't sound healthy, but it is a cool story. And now it's done. After they leave, I go to grab their check and, and their plates, and as I'm picking up their plates, I see... Sprinkled amid Kelly's discarded pizza crusts is the paper. And now it was already folded four ways, and she went ahead and shredded it four more ways from there, but as I hustle the plate back to the kitchen to toss it into the dish pit, I notice that the paper is still salvageable. So what do I do? I scoop up all the little strips of paper, I stuff them into my apron, and I don't pay it any more mind until I finish my shift. I drive home at a leisurely pace, and then, once I'm inside my apartment, I pour myself three fingers of whiskey, I sit down, crisscross applesauce on the rug, I reach into my apron pocket, pull out the shredded note, spread it across the coffee table, and I embark on my jigsaw. Now I realize as I'm here that I don't have all the pieces to the sheet, but after a few minutes I realize I have enough, I have enough of it assembled that I can see that this sheet is a two-tier list of pros and cons. The pros and cons of being in a relationship with Greg. On the left-hand side in a column are the pros, and fittingly, I guess, the first since they weren't in a real relationship, they appear to just be fuck buddies, the first item on the list is that they have great sex. Second is that he is verbally affectionate. Number three is that he's good with money. Number four is that he's good with kids. But then that fourth point has a line attached to it. And that line squiggles up and connects to the first point of the cons. Con number one is that he doesn't want any kids of his own. The second item on the list of cons is that he's late to everything. The third item is that he will cancel a date at the last minute just so he can stay at the office and get a head start on the next day's work. Now, once I had pieced together everything that I had and I'd read the whole thing, I felt really bad. I was fascinated. Like, the whole experience was fucking delicious because I'm a repugnant. She's more so I'm just as keen to read a fucking celebrity tabloid as I am to read the new Reagan biography. But it's one thing to eavesdrop on people who are having an intimate conversation, like, directly next to the spot where you're supposed to be standing for 12 hours. And it's another thing to take some of their personal correspondence from the counter and bring it home and read it and have it inform your impression of them and their relationship. I've told this story to a number of people and they're all eager by about the halfway point to know what happens at the end. They want to know what is on that paper, but some of them at the same time, after listening to the end, have chewed me out for it. Chewed me out for the violation of these people's privacy, while still others have argued, hey, these people decided to take their dirty laundry out into public and this is what happens. But it comes to mind now, because speaking with my relatives over at the memorial service in Vero Beach, I was thinking of how we mostly know each other, my relatives and I, based on what we read on Facebook, that we're piecing each other's lives together via documentation. And over the course of the service, as people told different stories about my late aunt, you got all these different stories and, and, and different angles too of the same person, and, and you got to appreciate their complexity. Now, when I think of my Aunt Jenny, my own memory is, is fleshed out with a mix of other people's first-hand memories, plus all the photos in the slideshow that was presented at the memorial service. That presents a sort of, like, entire life narrative on its own. And now, you know, I've got this regular, Greg. He and Kelly, as you might easily imagine, are no longer an item. And Greg and I talk at length every time he comes in. But my impression now of the man and of his life is also colored by this document that showed me how he, how he comes across to a person who loves him privately, romantically, which is a dimension of his character I would never otherwise understand. And it makes me think of the way that even the people in my immediate family, the way that I know them is, yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time with them, we've spoken about intimate things, but for the most part, I understand them as like a composite narrative. Even my aunt, you know, my, my understanding of her is informed 
somewhat marginally by our first-hand encounters, and now mostly it's informed by what my mom says about their childhood, or what my cousin says about what my aunt was like as a parent. Which in turn makes me think of the task of the biographer, and how the story of a person's life is also the story of their location and of their times. Over the past couple weeks, I've been reading a recent biography of President Ronald Reagan by Pulitzer-nominated historian H.W. Brands. As you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I recently interviewed uh, Jonathan Alter, who wrote a huge biography of President Jimmy Carter, which I very much enjoyed. And as I'm, I've got this burgeoning political awareness, geopolitical awareness, and one of the ways that you come to understand your country and you come to understand history is to understand the composite of personalities that formed that history and shaped that country. And so now, following Jimmy Carter, I moved on to his successor, starting in 1980, the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Dr. Brands was kind enough to join me via Zoom for a conversation about the Ra about Reagan on the surface, but it was less about Reagan finally than about the book itself and about the stylistic and ideological choices that a biographer has to make when trying to chronicle a person's life and times. How you have to ask yourself what are the parameters of a person's life, what are the episodes that really define that life, and finally, how do you tell that story? I took a lot away from this conversation, I had a great time, and I hope that you'll enjoy it too. So I read the Reagan book prior to binging some of your interviews, and there was a stylistic thing in the Reagan biography that I thought was a historian's quirk, and then I realized it might be more intentional, which is that you let your subjects speak. I've noticed in other biographies, they tend to, each, each paragraph tends to be a tapestry of quotes from different directions, whereas you very often hand the floor to your to your subjects and to the people around them. Um, when you're doing a transcript, it's not just dialogue. You pepper it with novelistic stage action, though it's unobtrusive. And I realize that's actually part of some concern that you have about the cult of the presidency. Do you feel that's a personal quirk, a historian's inclination? It's more a matter of how I try to convey history and how things happened. Um, and it also reflects a desire not to let these books read like history lectures or like history books. I try to take the historian, the author, as much out of the picture as possible. To the extent that the historian figures, the historian should be as unobtrusive as he or she can be. I also choose subjects to write about who have good voices, who can carry the story themselves, or I use sort of third parties to comment on these characters. So for example, my most recent book was about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. These are important individuals in their own right. They also have good voices. So I can let them talk. I try to avoid telling my readers what to think about my subjects. I try to let my readers form their own opinions based on the evidence that I see. And the primary evidence is when I'm writing books that feature individuals. They're not always straight up biographies. Sometimes they're these two-part things like John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. And I basically let John Brown speak his piece. I let Abraham Lincoln speak his piece. Now in their case, I needed, I needed some perspective on the two of them because they never actually met. And this is kind of a entwined lives. So my third party was Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass knew John Brown and got to know Abraham Lincoln. And he offered a perspective that's actually quite important when the main thing that connects John Brown and Abraham Lincoln is their view on slavery and what should be done about it. So I've discovered that I can't write about everybody this way. I'll say this, that even my history books that are not primarily biographies have a lot of biographical element in them. I find myself writing about history through the lives of people, through the experiences of people. In reading the Reagan biography, I was looking for something that might 
be considered a biographer's voice. And the one point in the book where I felt I was hearing it and I thought it was so delightful was in the, in the middle, almost the exact center of the book. You have a chapter about the influence of FDR on Reagan's approach to the presidency. And there's just about a page and a half where I feel like I'm hearing a historian consider contemplate the relationship of two of his subjects. It's also kind of the, it's one of the few contemplative spells of the book. And do you feel that it's not your place as a historian to offer commentary? Because it comes close there. For, but for the most part, your book is like, this happened, this happened, this happened, here's some context, here's what happened. Do you try to stand back from that kind of contemplative writing? Uh, yeah, and no. And here I'll tip my hand a little bit. In that, I'm a person who is inclined when somebody says, this is the way it was, to say, no, it wasn't that way. And I immediately am looking for holes in the argument. So to the extent that I try to make an argument, I, I'm not gonna say that I sort of hide the argument, but I, I want the argument to emerge out of the story. And I don't, and, and this is quite a different approach than academic historians typically follow. And I was originally trained as an academic historian, but that's not the reason I became a historian. I didn't become a historian because I liked reading academic histories. I became a historian because I liked reading sort of the raw, unfiltered history. My first serious engagement with the historical record and what really eventually caused me to become a historian was when I was about 22 years old, 23 years old, and I had a job as a traveling salesman. And I spent long days and weeks on the road in the American West. And this was back in the 1970s, before cable TV, before there was anything to do in small towns in Nevada, after the hardware stores closed at five o'clock in the evening. So I would leave home with a trunk full of cutlery samples, but also I would save room for history books from my grandfather's library. My grandfather was a sucker for traveling book salesmen, and there used to be such things. And he had the complete works of Hubert Howe Bancroft, a name that is generally not recalled these days, but he was a towering figure in American history during the 19th century. The historical research library at the University of California at Berkeley is called the Bancroft Library, it's named for Bancroft. And Bancroft basically would just take the diaries, letters, journals, correspondence of figures in the past and just sort of do um, an information dump and just kind of throw it all out there. And so I could read as I was driving across the American West, I could read these accounts of the exploration of the American West through the words, the diaries and so on of the people who were there. And I found this absolutely riveting and compared to what I would hear in, I was a history major in, as an undergraduate, and I would hear lectures, but when I'm hearing lectures, I would always get the voice of the lecturer, the professor, and my inclination was, how do you know that? How do you know, you say that, but how do you know that that's true? Why should I believe you? And so when I found myself engaging with what historians call the primary materials of history, I thought, this is great. And it was, it was, I thought it was far more colorful and more engaging than what I was getting in the history books. And, and this because there is a kind of, I hesitate to use the word novelistic because of course novelists make it up. But what there was, was there was an eyewitness aspect to this because why should I, for example, write about what it felt like to be in a gold camp in California in 1849? I wasn't there, I don't know what it felt like, but if I could find somebody who was there and who wrote, this is what it felt like, then all of a sudden it gives my account, which is really this other person's account, it gives it a credibility, it gives it a legitimacy that I couldn't have on my own. So there's that part of it. The other thing is that I do have a point to make in all of my books, but rather than start out, and this is the way the academics do, because there's always a three page preface to any academic history. This is what I am going to argue. Well, as um, an undergraduate historian, I couldn't care what the historians were arguing about. I wanted to get to the story. And so I made this decision pretty much right after I got tenure to the, not to play that game anymore because I didn't have to. And so I've, I found myself always annoyed at the stuff that stands between the reader and the start of the story because there's a preface and there's a prologue and there's a this, that, and the other thing. And, 
And I get that out of the way. Let's just dive right in the middle of the action. But, but having gotten the reader to a point where the reader kind of buys into the story, then on occasion, like the occasion you mentioned to Ronald Reagan, okay, I feel it's appropriate for me as the biographer and the historian to, to make some contextual comments. And so I'll say, okay, so I don't quite say, dear reader, here's where Reagan fits into this, but that's really what it amounts to. But I hope that by that stage of the story, the reader won't find it off-putting and maybe we'll say, all right, you know, I'll buy into this. It is very informed. And we know that the historian who's speaking to us has written a huge and celebrated book about FDR. So you bring credentials to the table, but even then you don't rest on your laurels and you keep it about a page and a half, if that. Right. And the other thing I make a real point of not doing is telling my readers what to think about, let's say, this individual that I'm writing about. And so when I write about Franklin Roosevelt, I make a point that the New Deal was a big deal, and I explain why it was important. But I don't say that the New Deal was a good deal or the New Deal was a bad deal. And the reason I don't do this is partly because I respect my readers' intelligence enough to want to let them make their own decision, but also because I realize that evaluating things in history, including evaluating individuals in history, has really much more to do with the values that the readers bring to the project than with the facts and the information that the author puts forward. So if you don't like the New Deal, it's probably because you don't like bigger government generally. And that's your privilege. You don't like bigger government, you're not gonna like the New Deal. The New Deal was one of the things that gave us our bigger government. If you do like bigger government, if you think a government can be useful in solving social problems, then you probably like the New Deal. But that's really your own business. I'll tell you why Franklin Roosevelt did what he did. I'll tell you what he was thinking. I give you enough of what his critics were thinking and saying that you ought to be able to, between those two, come up with your own conclusion. Same thing with Ronald Reagan. And one of the things I tried to do with Reagan, I had this notion that by the time I got to Ronald Reagan, which is 30 years after Reagan was president, that tempers on Reagan would have calmed enough that people would be willing to take an arm's length view of Reagan. And that's definitely what I tried to do. I said, okay, this is what Reagan did. I explained these things worked out the way he thought they would, these things didn't and left it to readers to form their own conclusions. That turned out to be wrong about sufficient <laughs> distance existing because I'll tell you that the, the Reagan fans, they really have thin skins on the subject of their guy. And I could say nine things that anybody else would judge as positive about Reagan. And I say one thing that objectives of yours might look at as criticizing Reagan. He let, the Iran-Contra thing, just get out of hand. Um, and that's all they would point to. they say, oh, that's terrible. You know, he hates Ronald Reagan, so how can he be believed? And of course, I mean, those are the conservatives or the, the Republican Reagan lovers. And liberals were, in many cases, upset that I hadn't tut-tutted Reagan the whole time. So kind of it's, uh, well, in this case, it demonstrated that my approach was working from an intellectual standpoint. Okay, I played it down the middle. It wasn't working from a commercial standpoint. And the, you know, it's one of the things that really fuels strong sales, especially in biographies, is you gotta like the person who's being portrayed. And this is one of the secrets of David McCullough's biographies. They're wonderful biographies of Harry Truman and John Adams. And David McCulloch is a good historian, a wonderful writer, and he takes pains to point out that, yeah, you know, I've, I told you everything that was wrong about John Adams and everything that was wrong about Harry Truman. But you read John Adams, McCulloch's John Adams, you read his book on Harry Truman, and, and effectively, they're sort of the same book, just subjects taken from different periods. It's every man makes good. It's sort of every man, every uh, American, sort of this model American, ordinary person makes good. And you come away, you know, thinking, boy, that John Adams, he was a great guy, that Harry Truman. And it's like, you know, going to a Broadway musical. 
If you come out of the theater whistling the tune, then you, you, the producers know they've got a hit. When you give this sort of, I'll call it a more balanced view, or one where you leave it to the readers to form their own opinion, they, they don't come out there cheering for your guy. At least they haven't so far. <laughs> well, though, I mean, I will say this though, that I applied the same formula to Benjamin Franklin, except Benjamin Franklin is just utterly irresistible. And the other thing is he's so far in the past that nobody holds anything against Benjamin Franklin anymore. Whereas people hold, well, people in the South still hold the Union victory against Ulysses Grant and conservatives hold the New Deal against Franklin Roosevelt. And liberals don't like Ronald Reagan for giving us, well, as they see it, what, what eventually Donald Trump. So, uh, yes, I saw your piece in Newsweek, which is very incisive. Um, okay, that touched on a bunch of things. Okay, so you mentioned one, you started out as a traveling salesman reading the raw firsthand materials of history, diaries and letters and stuff. Do you have any reason to feel an excitement or concern for future historians who are chronicling our modern moment where the tr where everything the, the, there's not as much paper moving around the the conversations are more ephemeral do you think historians of 2050 when writing about 2015 are going to have a harder time than you do writing about 1890 it's going to be a, ch a different challenge i don't know if it's going to be harder or easier in some ways it's going to be easier because people's lives are documented in a way that somebody trying to recreate the events of the 18th century, you know, could get really envious of. The problem really is that we're going to be overwhelmed with information and nobody knows yet how the information that is generated on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube, all this other stuff, how that is going to be preserved. Is it going to be possible to retrieve Facebook 50 years from now, hundred years from now? Archivists, librarians know how to deal with ink on paper. They've been doing it for 2000 years or more. They don't know how to deal with electrons, you know, in some digital format where the format changes every 10 years. And you know, there are certainly cases, I have original manuscripts that I wrote that are on floppy disks. I never got around to transferring them out of floppy disk and it would be a, a real pain to try to you know, recapture that stuff. So I don't know what it's going to be. There's also the whole business about, well, I've sometimes said that we are approaching the end of the age of literacy. And what I mean is that 500 years ago, most people weren't literate. And most people got their information through hearing it from a town crier, or they'd get it from a government smokes from coming around or they just get it by word of mouth. The age of mass literacy, where pretty much everybody, or at least most people have access to learning to read is only three or 400 years old. But we have reached a point now where it's entirely possible to live your life without ever reading much. Yeah, it helps to be able to read snippets on Twitter but you don't have to read books. You don't have to have the patience to read a book to find out. You don't, you could get your news without reading newspaper articles, video. And I remember I had been suspecting this was happening, but I remember the first time I was, this was now, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, when I was reading an article in the New York Times, the New York Times. And instead of just a written article, they gave me a video on the subject. And I was really annoyed because you know, like, people who get into my profession, you know, I'm a pretty efficient reader. And I could read the information in 30 seconds that it took a video three minutes to deliver. Now, admittedly, the video had photos and video of stuff, but I just, I'm used to consuming my information in written form. But the written language, reading is not, doesn't come instinctively to anybody. And so, I often encounter readers who say they like this book or that, the ones who don't like it, they usually talk to me about this, but they'll say, I really liked your book on John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. And then they'll say, sometimes kind of sheepishly, well, actually I listened to the book on audio and I'm fine with that. I, I think that's great because I think it's actually in many ways a more effective way. We 
we evolved to understand the spoken language. But, and I, I have thought, okay, how about if most of my readers are actually listeners, how will that change the way that I write? And in the first place, if indeed that becomes the case, if I were to write a book to be exclusively audio, one of the things I simply would throw away right off is paragraphs. When you listen to a book, you don't hear paragraphs. You just, okay, it's just you know, do straight through. You know, paragraphing is one of those things that was simply invented. In fact, if you go far enough back, if you try to read old Roman, that is Latin inscriptions, they don't even have spaces between the words. They just, it's just right along like that. And so we have these visual cues for a story, I'll call it a story, that is told on a page. And so we have chapters, okay? And we have paragraphs and we have sentences, but most people don't speak in sentences. We just kind of run things on, just clause after clause after clause. And if that's the case, then maybe we authors should consider writing in a different form. This is why, this is how actually I got it. I, I started up a Twitter account because I wondered if you could tell historical tales, 140 characters at a time. If this is the way it's, if people are consuming stuff, why not? And I started off doing it that way. And I decided actually that poetry in its various forms was really well suited to that. So I started writing a history of the United States in the form of haikus. And it was kind of, it was fun to do, isn't it? I still do it. I still, right now I'm tweeting out the ballad of the presidents. And so every two or three days, I put out a new stanza on, is sometimes depending on who the president is, it might be one on James, James Buchanan only gets one, Abraham Lincoln gets several stanzas. He got to fight a civil war. But it's, it's really a reversion to a way of storytelling. So Homer wrote in verse because he didn't actually write, he spoke. And so I think those of us who are in the information conveying business, we have to pay attention to what the media are that people are using to consume the information, to consume the stories that they acquire. I think I'm starting to see more of you in your work because I notice even in conversation, you have some of the elliptical, uh, I guess, stratagem that you employ in, in telling historical stories where you, you will abandon Reagan for five pages and then come back to Reagan and suddenly it's three-dimensional. And you do that in answering questions as well. But you, you mentioned uh, reader engagement in different mediums and stuff. The novelist Dean Koontz said that, you know, he has millions of readers. He says that he never gets more angry fan mail about his thriller novels than when he gets a detail wrong about a gun. And I imagine that in the course of your research, I, I suspect there have been some topics where you were surprised by the sensitivity of your reader's ownership of a certain figure or of a certain episode? Um, because I'm aware of this propensity in some readers, I tend not to provide as much detailed information as many authors do, especially novelists. And it's one of the reasons I don't write novels. I mean, I've occasionally dabbled in sort of the idea of writing novels, but I've never published anything. But novelists, they have to create a whole world. And for many of the readers, it's the world they create that is as important as what happens in that world. And the readers, at least many of them, want to be told everything about that world. And so, for example, this is just a simple point. When a novelist is presenting, let's say, the protagonist, the novelist has to tell the readers what the protagonist looks like what kind of gestures the protagonist makes. Well, I often write about famous figures. I don't have to tell the readers what Abraham Lincoln looked like. All they have to do is pull out a $5 bill. Everybody knows what Abraham Lincoln looked like. And, and this, is, um, this relieves me of a certain responsibility. On the other hand, it, it limits, I, I I'm stuck with sort of what Abraham Lincoln looks like. Now I can then take it from there and comment that Abraham Lincoln appeared to age dramatically during the few years of the Civil War. But I also know that in some ways it's kind of, well, it, it's what um, the Arabs, the, when, when Muslims 
uh, decided that they would burn the libraries at Alexandria or Istanbul or wherever it was. When, when a new group, when a new religious group would come in and say, we're gonna burn all the books from the previous regime. And the thinking was the books are either wrong because they contradict our new views or they're superfluous because they agree with them. You know, we're just gonna go with the Quran or the Bible or whatever the Holy Scripture was. And when you're dealing with people who have been either painted by portrait painters or photographs or photographed, it's, it's either, if you describe somebody, you either are gonna be contradicted by the photo that they see, or if you just sort of reproduce in words what the photo shows, well, you've wasted your breath. It's either superfluous or, or wrong. So when you deal with stuff that actually happened, the challenge is not creating this new world. The challenge is commenting on the world that exists. And com the comment is sometimes um, explicit comment. Okay, this is what the world was like. But it also is a matter of, so what part of that world do you portray? And so what do you focus on? And when I read novels, I get impatient. I actually just get impatient with excessive detail. I don't care what kind of gun it was that shot that person. And I don't care how many stripes there were on the sleeve of the uniform. I wanna know sort of who killed that person and why. And my, I, I adopt the same approach when I'm writing about history. So I really don't go, Edmund Morris, um, the late now Edmund Morris is a wonderful writer. He started out as a journalist and he was one who made a point of describing in great detail, sort of every meeting room that Theodore Roosevelt was. They're sort of right down to the kinds of flowers that were on the table. And honestly, it's wonderful writing and uh, his books were great bestsellers and prize winners and everything. So lots of people like that. But when I read that, I felt like, especially with those flowers on the table, I had to have a machete as I was sort of cutting my way to, when are we gonna to get to the point of this meeting? And so I am rather judicious, I like to think, in my choice of detail to provide. And some of it is just that matter of taste, but some of it is also, you know, there's no point in giving those people who actually do know more about the details of Civil War weapons than I do, give them a chance to discover that, yeah, they really do know more about this than I do. <laughs> um, and, and about the soul warping arcana, I, I think you did a remarkable job of rendering, and I, I paid this compliment to um, Jonathan Alter about um, the Camp David Accords as well, making the endlessly nuanced Middle Eastern conflicts digestible you, you, you stay within the parameters of what Reagan was dealing with. I did get kind of in the weeds in the uh, trickle-down sections from his first couple of years in office. And I'm wondering about, are, are there things that you have unexpectedly had to cover or master, digest in order to advance your story or to just get your, get your fingers around it? So there are parts of any story, especially if you're writing about, let's say, a president that have to be covered because they were important and because this person was president, but that are no longer particularly important, that were interesting, indeed vital at the time, but are no longer particularly interesting. And so with Reagan, things having to do with tax cuts, with the budgets, especially of his first administration, these were huge deals when Reagan was president. And so I feel obliged to deal with them. And I try to explain them to the extent that I can convey why they were considered important. I do, but I understand that at a certain point, you know, budget is a budget. I wrote a book about Theodore Roosevelt and Theodore Roosevelt is an interesting example of a phenomenon that actually is observable with various people, not all, all various people who became president. And that is for some people, especially Theodore Roosevelt, the presidency was the most boring, predictable period of his life. And so with Theodore Roosevelt, I mean, I wrote a book on Theodore Roosevelt, it's 800 pages long. 
And I probably devoted no more than, I'm sure there was less than a quarter of the book was about his presidency, simply because there's so much else to tell about Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt is an example of someone who would have been worthy of biographies had he never been president, because he was such an interesting person in the context of his time. Frank, uh, Benjamin Franklin falls in the same category. If there had never been an, an American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin would have been world famous because he already was world famous before the revolution broke out. Ronald Reagan stands in contrast to that. If Ronald Reagan had never been president of the United States, no one would have thought to write a biography of him. He certainly didn't rank high enough in the Hollywood hierarchy to get you know, the James Cagney or Jimmy Stewart treatment. He wasn't a star really. Is the importance of Ronald Reagan, the reason that people wanna know about Reagan is that he was president. So my book, my biography of Ronald Reagan is almost as long as my biography of Theodore Roosevelt, but where my Theodore Roosevelt book, maybe a quarter of it is the presidency, three quarters of Reagan, of my Reagan biography is the presidency because that's the reason he's important. So in a case like that, and especially because the issues are closer to the present, I can't, I couldn't in good conscience as a historian say, ah, that's just dull, let's not do it. Now, if I had been solely a biographer, I've discovered that biographers tend to come to their subject, to, to the genre of biography from one of two directions. One is from history, and the other is from journalism, or sometimes they're novelists who wander in. But the difference you can actually, if you just pick up the book and glance through it, and if you're looking for this, you can quickly tell which side you're coming from, because the, the journalists, they tend to write sort of in really tight focus where everything is on their subject. Whereas the historians, well, every biography is a life and times. And the historians are often interested as much in the times as they are in the life itself. And in fact, my Reagan book was the final installment of what I had come to think of as my America, its lives and times. It was a series of biographies that I projected starting in the 1990s that was going to tell the history of the United States in the form of biography. And this because I had discovered that people will buy biographies who won't buy something that's called history. A lot of people have rather um, dull memories of high school history class, something they were made to study. And so, oh, history, I and mean, if I would say I'm writing history this, the eyes would glaze over pretty quickly. But biography, nobody, ever, nobody has bad memories of a biography class because nobody took a biography class, but also because biography, so that's about people. I'm interested in, everybody's interested in people. So my Reagan book was volume six in this series of books that was gonna add up to a history of the United States. And the first volume was on Benjamin Franklin, then Andrew Jackson, Ulysses Grant, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan. And so because it was conceived as a history of the United States, I, I had to write the history of the United States during Reagan's lifetime. Now, in fact, the prequel to my Reagan book was Franklin Roosevelt, and he dies in 1945. So I didn't have to spend a lot of, I had, didn't have to do context before 1945. I did have to do Reagan, of course, before 1945. But from 1945 to the beginning of the 21st century, Reagan dies. I do, it's, it's context as well as just the subject itself. And that's, so that's one of the reasons that I include stuff that I perhaps wouldn't have included if I were writing something that was strictly a biography or to put it another way, if I were writing about this 200 years later when we could just ignore stuff that really no longer had any resonance at all. And I, so I was able to be much more selective regarding what I covered on Benjamin Franklin because the issues of Pennsylvania politics, they have no resonance today, but we're still living with the consequences of the politics of the Reagan era. And so and that's one of the reasons that people might wanna read a biography of Ronald Reagan. It's fascinating to hear you conceptualize these biographies as installments in a series, because given some things, some remarks that you've made about the importance of, of being an engaging storyteller and warming the appetite of a disinterested reader, are you, I was, I was imagining that you are inherently averse to the idea of a multi-volume biography. Uh, the monolithic thing that's obviously still unfolding that everyone uh, points back toward is, is Robert Caro. Doesn't seem that, that it happens very often. Maybe the duology, the two volume, are you fundamentally averse to, to that? Like, are, 
from a storytelling perspective? Not so much from a storytelling perspective. And nobody can gainsay what Robert Kerr is able to do with Lyndon Johnson, except that the thing I'm averse to is what has become of Robert Carroll. And I know Bob Carroll from casually a little bit, and I have been able to observe how Lyndon Johnson has taken over his life. And the result for readers is this fantastic story about Lyndon Johnson, which comes out at the rate of about 800 pages every 10 years or so. And okay, that's fine. But when I have students come up to me after class and say, I'm really interested in Lyndon Johnson, what can you recommend? I can't in good conscience say, go read Robert Caro's book on Lyndon Johnson, because I can't consign my students to you know, 5,000 pages on Lyndon right. Johnson. In fact, I think that Robert Caro's biography, I certainly hope he finishes it before it finishes him. Um, I think that his is going to be the best one volume biography of Lyndon Johnson when somebody, after he dies, is gonna come along and do the abridged one volume version. Because as wonderful as writing might be, and as important as all the detail might seem when you're writing it, nobody, and especially Lyndon Johnson, does not deserve 5,000 pages of anybody's time. Now, if you want to read it simply for entertainment spaced out over 40 years, he's been working on it for 40 years. Okay, that's fine. But that student, that imaginary student who's going to come up and say, what can I read on Lyndon Johnson? If Caro's, and he has fantastic vignettes, just take the best. You know, and the way I put it to my students when they're writing papers, I say, write long. If you're, if you're assigned a 500-word essay, write it at 1,000 and then choose the 500 best words out of 1,000. Imagine, I mean, Carol's books are great. Imagine if you could take just the best of every one of those Carol um, volumes. Right. Uh, so, but as for me, I cannot, by the, by the time I get to the end of a full-life biography of somebody, I'm usually ready to kill them off. <laughs> The idea that, that makes sense. Oh gosh, I got to carry on with this. No. And it's really a matter of, it's just sort of authorial judgment. Not everything is equally important. And I'll say this, that I teach history. I teach history to non-history majors who are required to take American history. And so I teach a full you know, two-semester course that starts with way back in the Ice Ages and comes up to the present. And that being the case, I have to choose what I can say because I don't have enough time to, people do spend entire semesters on the American Revolution or the Civil War, or the 1960s. I have to decide what to leave out because these students, they have been assigned to me and they're certainly not in a position where they're gonna absorb everything there is to know about American history. So what's What's really important? What's, what's the most important stuff? So I give them basically the greatest hits of American history. I'm wondering, is there, do you vacillate between modes sometimes between the historian, his, you know, capital H in the stacks historian and the communicator? It really does depend on who I'm talking to. So if I'm speaking to a fellow historian, let's say, mm -hmm. then there is a certain sort of expectation of what that person knows what I know. And so the conversation really takes a different tone. Some of it is a discussion of craft. Some of it is just based on, okay, we both have this background of information and let's talk about that. Some of it is just simply a matter of, um, so who did people come here to listen to? I mean, sometimes I'm in conversation with somebody, but I've just got a new book out and the person, the moderator, the questioner, is clearly there sort of to prompt my thoughts. And, you know, okay, so people actually sometimes actually paid to come hear me. Sometimes, you know, in essence, they do that. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if I think that I'm supposed to be engaging the audience directly, then it's a different feeling, it's a different approach for me than if I'm just talking with someone about this common interest that we have. So, so when I'm sitting having a cup of coffee with a fellow historian, I don't come across the same way I do 
if I'm standing up in front of 500 students who right. are, um, they threaten to be, to have their minds distracted by the engineering test they've got coming up or the party that they went to three nights ago. It, it's a different thing. Do you thirst for conversation about sort of historical minutiae, the kinds of things that um, you don't, you wouldn't be able to discuss with a, with a general audience? I won't say I, I go thirsty. I get enough of it. So it uh, satisfies me. Okay. Well, my, my last question was my noting the, um, how Reagan was very compelled by FDR. Um, Joe Biden is very compelled by FDR and a, a strange thread. I don't know why this had not occurred to me, but it, it popped up in your book because your FDR chapter um, comes with his reelection. And all three of these men were scrutinized for physical infirmity, physical and cognitive infirmity. And I'm wondering if you see any kind of correlation between age, I don't want to say necessarily infirmity, although FDR's was more conspicuous physically. Do you see some correlation between that agenda, that progressive agenda and age or ailment? Well, I would say on the face of it, no, because no one would really accuse Ronald Reagan of having a progressive agenda. Um, it definitely is the case that when you get to be in your mid to late 70s, you very often do show signs that you're not as sharp as you were in your 30s. It would be a surprise if that were not so. Uh, one of the things that I found very striking about working on Reagan is that Reagan was, of course, a child of the movie television age. And so it's possible on YouTube, everything's on YouTube. Everything that was ever filmed is on YouTube. And I could go back and watch Ronald Reagan speaking to the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1947. Now, I was a regular adult when Ronald Reagan was president. And so I was sort of introduced to Ronald Reagan. I was in California when Reagan was governor of California. And so I sort of knew of him then, but I wasn't paying that much attention. But then of course he runs for president, he becomes president. And what everybody knew Reagan to be was sort of the grandfatherly Ronald Reagan, who was, he told jokes and funny stories and he, he knew how to perform the presidency. But if you go back and look at Reagan, 35 years earlier, he was really sharp. He had an edge to it that maybe time or perhaps simply political experience uh, wore away. But there was a sharpness to Reagan. And so this is all by way of saying that, yeah, Reagan in his 70s was not the Reagan in his 30s and 40s. None of us are. And you've mentioned FDR. FDR was not an old man during his presidency, but he aged a lot partly because of the after effects of polio, partly because of the strain of leading the country through 12 years of depression and world war. So people around Roosevelt could see that it was really taking its toll. And with Joe Biden, you know, Joe Biden is a little bit slower on the uptake than he was when he was 30, but again, this comes with age. The question is sort of what's the question for somebody trying to decide, okay, is this person qualified to be president? And that's something, of course, we should ask of anybody who wants to be president, whether they're Theodore Roosevelt in his early 40s or Joe Biden in his late 70s. You know, are they qualified to be president? And there definitely is a trade-off. So Joe Biden is more experienced. Joe Biden quite conceivably is wiser now than he was 40 years ago. We hope that we're all getting wiser with age. And so this is something that you evaluate. It is striking to me that the leaders of both political parties are old people. And it's, I think, especially important given the challenges that face the United States, the challenges that include, well, we'll start with the pandemic, but with climate change, the the, the problems that face the United States, with the, the big exception of the pandemic, COVID, are not acute problems. They're chronic problems. They're the kinds of things that our political system finds it really easy to kick down the road and let somebody else solve it. Because if we don't solve climate change, if we don't even address climate change during the next five years, during the next five years, nobody's going to notice. 
But 50 years from now, the fact that nobody addressed it now is going to be a really big deal, except that those people making the decisions today and those of us of a certain age, we're not going to be around to worry about it. So I tell my students who are 18 and 19 years old, you know, personally, if all I'm thinking of is my own self-interest, I should probably vote against anything that's going to cost any money at all to address climate change because I'm gonna be dead before the worst consequences of climate change kick in. But they need to pay attention because they're gonna be living with it. They're gonna be here 50 years after I'm gone. So this is something that every political system had to, has to figure out. How do you balance the energy and sort of the, the long time horizon of youth with the experience and presumably wisdom of age? And I think at the moment we're for various reasons, we're trending toward old folks in those positions of authority. But we've had changes in the past. And so Dwight Eisenhower was one of the oldest people to occupy the White House and he was succeeded by John Kennedy, the youngest man elected president of the United States. So that time is coming, but um, I think it should get here sooner rather than later.